Let's pray together, church. Father, we don't want to get used to this strange new way of worshiping together and hearing your word together, but we're grateful we can do this. You are in every place. You're here with us. You're in every home, Lord, where people are tuning in to hear from you. Give me the grace that I need, Lord. You know my shortcomings. You know the limitations of my understanding and the limitations that this sermon will certainly have. But by your grace, I pray that we would hear from you and that I would adjust my life accordingly so that I wouldn't be a hypocrite, but that I would act in my brothers and sisters, my friends and family in this church, wherever, Lord, your word is heard through this little broadcast, that we would all act with the godly courage you show us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about one of the most admirable traits any human being can have. Men, women, young or old, courage is never wrong. Godly courage is always needed. And in March, when this pandemic finally changed our lives in a significant way, when it became more than a rumor and a news story from overseas, we all found our character tested. We've learned things about ourselves and hopefully about God through this process. Some of us have discovered that we're not as patient as we thought we were. Many of us have discouraged that our courage has faltered. In March, in a new way, something that has always been true was exposed. We really are in a battle of whether to believe God or someone else. And every time God's Word is opened, that battle for the hearts and minds of the human beings God made is joined again. For the next few weeks, I'd like to talk to you about biblical courage, looking at some of the men and women who were placed in dire circumstances, you're going to find in even more threatening circumstances than we are this morning. I'd like you to show you their lives. Sometimes there's a tendency to romanticize these stories, and because we know how they end and how people acted, we find their behavior commonplace, expected. Hopefully, we'll be able to stand in the dirt of the ancient world of the Bible and feel the pressure that they did and consider the fears that they must have faced. You probably have to be a seminary graduate to be so dense, but it only occurred to me a few years ago that the frequently commanded instruction that's found all across the Bible to not be afraid could have only been given to people because they were afraid. In other words, people who were told to not be afraid but to trust God instead or to have courage or to act with courage must have in that moment been instead about to act like cowards. Someone said that the commandment to, do not, to not be afraid is the most frequently commanded single thing in all the Bible. In fact, somebody told me that the commandment do not be afraid is found 365 times in the Bible. I don't know about that. That sounds like something a pastor would make up just to uh, make everything fit nicely. I haven't done the math myself, but whatever the truth, 
People all across the Scripture were told not to be afraid for the simple idea and for the simple reason that eluded me for so long, because they were. And perhaps no one was more afraid than a man could be than Joshua was. Look in his life, please, the story of his life in the book of Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, in your Old Testament, in the beginning of God's Word to us, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. To orient you to the story of Scripture, if you're not very familiar, God had promised land to Abraham and to a man who could not have a family. God promised a big family. And he told Abraham, Abraham, from your descendants will rise someone who will bless all the nations of the world. And I'm going to give you a big family, and I'm going to give you land of your own. But for centuries, it seemed that that promise had been broken or forgotten. Because Abraham's descendants did prosper for a time, but then they were enslaved for centuries in Egypt until God began to work in a new way, and in one of the most famous stories in all of human knowledge, Moses walked back into Egypt where he was providentially raised and told Pharaoh, God said, let my people go, and eventually led Israel, a nation of slaves, out toward the land that God had promised them. But along the way, Moses found out something terrible about the people he was leading. They were stiff-necked and stubborn and fearful and filled with complaints. In fact, they were so treacherous and so unfaithful that God said, this whole generation, Moses, will die in the desert. They'll only see the promise. They won't enjoy it. Their children will have to. And this event evidently took such a toll on Moses himself that the man described as the meekest, most self-controlled man that ever lived after a lifetime, after decades of dealing with such complaints and laments, lost his cool and disrespected God. And God told Moses a very serious and sad thing. After all he had done, Moses would only look into the promised land he would die on the wrong side of the river. And it would be up to someone else, it would be up to Joshua, whose book we now read, to actually lead the people in practice to enjoy everything that God had promised. Joshua knew what kind of people these were, so he must have felt his heart quake when he was told this. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son, of no, uh, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, if you're in Joshua's situation, do you find that encouraging? God has drawn you aside, and you can tell he's about to commission you, and the first thing he says to you is, Moses, my servant, is dead. Well, that's not encouraging because Moses is the man. If you were going to have a Mount Rushmore of biblical people, Moses would have to be on it. Joshua, we're told here, had been only his assistant, and he was more than that. He was more than a secretary. He had gone 
with Moses near the mountain when the law was given. He stood outside the tent of the tabernacle while Moses communed with God. He was one of only two spies who were sent into the land who came back with a good report and said, we can do this. That's why he's alive. But now God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. He's getting a big commission. Verse 2, my servant Moses is dead, now therefore arise. Get up, Joshua, I'm not done. You're going to cross the Jordan River with all of these people behind you. To Joshua, who has travailed so long with these people, this must have sounded like daunting orders for two reasons. The Jordan River is actually crossing into enemy territory. Once they cross that boundary marker, they are going to be in the midst of savage pagan people who have no fear of God and no fear of anyone else who they already know will kill them on sight and cruelly men, women, and children will be slaughtered if they are given that opportunity. And Joshua remembers the cowardice of the parents of the people he's now leading there is very little in what Joshua has seen from the people he's leading to this point to indicate that these former slaves, these children of people born into slavery, will somehow turn into an army, somehow step forward into battle after having no land of their own for centuries. Now somehow they are going to cross an enemy boundary marker and endure attacks and prevail and settle and enjoy in a country they've never even seen? Courage is needed. And that's why the rest of these verses toward the end are so beloved. Look in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Are you picking up on the theme? Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, in other words, what Moses had written to Israel as God's instructions, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Here's one of the most popular verses, one of the most shared verses. You'll see this verse on Instagram, Facebook. You'll see this verse tattooed on people's bodies. But I don't want you to miss the context if you're going to develop godly courage. 
God said to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Crosspoint, friends, family, missionaries watching from overseas. What we need now is godly courage. We've always needed it. We've needed it all our lives. Anything worth doing, anything that has pleased God has almost certainly been done with courage, but we need it now more than ever. What is courage exactly? Well, courage isn't bravado. And courage isn't necessarily bold action either. I told someone before church started, if you had been filming my life since I was a kid, you'd probably see some bold action that looked like courage but was actually just ignorance. Sometimes people act with what seems like great bravery and courage, but actually all that's happening is they're just ignorant of the danger. If they knew what they were getting themselves into, they wouldn't put themselves in that situation. Courage is different. President Roosevelt, FDR, said this, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else matters more than fear. That's what Joshua is dealing with. That's why he is repeatedly told, he's told multiple times in this short commission that what is needed now is courage. We have to cultivate courage, and this is left for Israel and for us because from this short and beloved passage, you yourself who are so fearful, who are so anxious, yes, you yourself like I can learn to cultivate courage. How is that done? It's done by two things that keep coming up in this, in this passage, and I'm going to show it to you. The first thing people need to cultivate godly courage is to know what God has promised. You can't be courageous unless you know what your heavenly Father has lovingly promised you already. Look in verse, look in verse 8 again. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What Joshua is told to do is immerse himself in what God has already said to put in his heart and literally in his mouth a remembrance to dedicate himself to what God has promised him. And there are many promises in this short passage. Look in verse 3. Here's a promise made to Joshua. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. Verse 5 has another promise. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. These are promises. But if you don't know what your loving, faithful, heavenly Father who loved your life more than the life of Jesus, think about that for a moment. God loved the idea of you enjoying eternal life with him more than he loved the earthly life of his son. That's how much he cherished you. Not because you're good enough to deserve that, but because God is good enough to give that. And along with his son, of course, your father has given you extraordinary promises, and they're all right here. 
And Joshua was told to remember the commandments, the Torah, the instructions of Moses. You've been given much more of the Word of God than Joshua was ever given. You've been introduced to Jesus. You've been told that you're actually in God's family by the virtue of the death of His Son. You've been told that you have a new name and a new identity. You have been made promises like this. When you speak to God in the name of His Son, Jesus, God will always listen. And if you ask anything according to His will, God will always answer. In Romans 8.26, you were told that you don't know how to pray but that God helps you in your weakness by having the, inter the Holy Spirit who lives in you intercede, speak to God for you with groanings, Paul says, that are too deep for words. These are only some of the promises that you were made, but if you don't know them, you can't be courageous. If you don't know and don't believe what God has already promised you, there's no way for you to act in courage. This is, this could be a little, this could seem a little subtle, so let me be clear. The Word of God is filled with commandments and instructions. The sovereign God who made the world knows exactly how He wants the people He made to live. All through the Bible are not only promises, but also instructions and commandments. Just like any wise, loving, good parent, God has house rules. He has a very specific way He wants His children to behave. Along with a great deal of freedom, He has given us very clear boundaries and rules for how we should live, what we should do with our bodies and our minds and our time and the purpose He has placed us here on this earth for. He spelled it out. God is not random. God is not confused. He doesn't make things up on the fly. He has a way that He wants you to live. Those instructions are important. But those instructions, understanding what God has told you to do, doesn't actually prompt courage. That only shows you duty. That only shows you your obligation. Where courageous faith comes from is from knowing exactly what God has promised to you. Some of these promises are made to Joshua and to Joshua alone. You would be foolish and you would be taking the Bible wildly out of context if you were to take some of the specific promises that were made to Joshua into your own life. Let me give an example. When we were missionaries in Mexico, there was a wild preacher in town who was inviting people down to the church. He had taken two ideas from the Old Testament. He said, come to the church, I'll anoint your feet with oil. And then you can go out and select any piece of property in the city. And if you march around this, that piece of property with your anointed feet seven times, God will give you that property. It'll be yours for free. How do you think that worked out for the people who dared to try it? Very likely the landowners just looked at and wondered who these strange people with oily feet were who were wandering around their property line. That was a terrible application, probably based in a love for money, I would guess. I'm not sure, but that's usually when Scripture is twisted that badly. It's not that God, the preacher, wants something for the people. It's usually that the preacher wants something for himself. But God has made you even greater promises than those in His Word. He has said in Romans that God, who gave His Son for you, will surely, along with Jesus, give you all things. 
He's told you that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you were told that in every kind of suffering, you can expect the God of all comfort to comfort you so that from the comfort you get from God, you may share it with others. This book is filled with loving, gracious promises for you, but if you don't know them, you won't be motivated to act courageously upon them because you don't know what God has already told you is yours. Joshua knows all this. He knows the promises. He knows who Moses was. He remembers how Moses died. He knows what the plan was all along. Why is God reviewing all of this with him? And why specifically is he telling him in verse 8 that the things that Moses wrote should not depart? Look again in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. God told, Moses, God told Joshua first, what I'm telling you now to do is going to require a great deal of courage. So saturate your heart and your mind and use your mouth literally to remember my word. Let me be very practical because today I want to be brief. All of you, including me, especially me, all of you need far less social media and far less news and much more Scripture. You have literally hundreds of voices clamoring for your attention laced with anger and fear, talking to you all day long. And the only 100% truthful, gracious, loving, and faithful voice you can hear at any point through your day is the voice of your Father in His Word. The reason Joshua was told in, one, in chapter 1, verse 8, that the law should not depart from his mouth, but he should meditate on it day and night. That's a beautiful word picture in the Hebrew language where God is almost literally telling Joshua, take this into your heart and mull it over. Chew on this. The biblical idea of meditation is very different from the meditation of the Far East. Eastern mysticism invites you to empty your mind, sometimes by using a word or a phrase that you say repeatedly until you enter an altered state of consciousness and your mind, your conscious mind kind of departs, it blanks out. Biblical meditation is different. The idea of biblical meditation is to take into your being the things that God has said and to mull them over to chew them over, to put them in your heart and to use them through writing and through speaking and through meditating and through memorizing to continually remind yourself of the things that God has promised you so that when you are called upon to act with courage, your faith won't falter. It's God's promises that are the beginning. And then there's a second thing that Joshua has promised. The way to develop godly courage is first by knowing God's promises, and second, by remembering God's presence. Look in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Look at all these commandments. Be strong and courageous. That's one. Do not be frightened. 
That's another. Do not be dismayed. That's another. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's a very simple commission. Joshua, I want you to take pains daily to remember everything I promised in writing. Start your day with me. Remember what I promised. Moses, you are now the heir to that promise. It's not going, it's not going to be him. He's dead. It's going to be up to you to be the living fulfillment of everything I once promised Moses. You're going to be the man. But I want you to take in what I put in writing. I want you to put that in your heart every day and to not be afraid, to be strong and courageous instead, to not be frightened, to not be dismayed. And here's why. Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, before we're done, because again, this is quick. You may ask yourself, well, that's Joshua, but this isn't thousands of years ago, and I'm not a conqueror probably not even an Israelite. Has God promised to be with you wherever you go? What do you think? Can you show me in the Bible? Let me show you. Hold your place in Joshua and look over in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. The name of Joshua means Savior. Let me show you the words of the real Savior. Matthew chapter 28, please. This is a different kind of commission much later. Jesus also has stood in front of a complaining, fearful people. They've only obeyed him and listened to him in spurts and in parts the way they did to Moses and the way they did to Joshua. But Jesus has saved a few disciples. He has invested his life in them for several years. And right before going to glory, the men who watched him die on the cross and now know he's back from the dead are told this. Matthew 28, verse 17. Oh, we'll read from verse 16. Now, when the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when he saw them, they worshiped him, but what's it say there? Some doubted. The disciples are in the presence of the living Christ. He still has the wounds from the cross on his body. There's no doubt this is him, but some are still doubtful. So he gives them a commission and he gives them an assurance. Listen to how much this sounds like the promise and the commission that God gave to Joshua so much earlier. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am what? I am with you. How long? Always to the end of the age. We have our own commission. We're not Israelites. We're not living in the days of the promised land We're part of God's bigger family. We're Christians, and we have been told to disciple the world. Everything that God commands takes courage. To open your mouth and to give a witness about Jesus like these first disciples started to do until the gospel reached our side of the world centuries later, that takes courage. To be told to live in harmony in a, peace, in a family of faith called the local church and to trust that the local church is actually the body of Christ, 
And it is still flawed, and it is still growing, and it is still sinning, but the local church belongs to Jesus and is loved by Jesus. And to be told to mutually forgive one another and to bear with one another and to not give up on meeting together, but to actually consider one another so that we will provoke each other to greater faith and to better good works, all of that takes courage. It is so much easier to disregard the commandments of Scripture when they get hard to do. That is what is so disconcerting to everybody, including to pastors like me. In January, this room was full. It was full twice in the morning, and we had a little handful even in the evening. Now all my pastoral gauges are removed because very understandably, only a handful of people come to these morning services more watching online, but we can't possibly know who, how many. We can't know how you're actually doing unless you tell us we don't know how you're actually doing. I am trying to wear myself out, keeping tabs on a lot of people because I know that those who suffer the most often suffer in silence. That means that if we're going to thrive and succeed as a church family and do what Jesus told us, to evangelize the world, to disciple people, to come together as a church family and serve Him in love and bear with one another and be patient with each other, to submit to our authorities even as we speak truth and witness to our authorities, all of that is going to take courage, and courage is not easy. The reason we're told not to be afraid but instead to be courageous is because the choice is always between courage and fear. And that's why I'm inviting you to remember two things, God's promises and God's presence. And remember that if God is with Joshua, he is even more so with you. I don't believe Joshua at his point in salvation history could have even imagined how deep the love of God was that God would come in the person of his son Jesus Christ to bear with sinners and to die for sinners so that God could call us his sons and daughters. And if you're loved like that and God has made you promises on the basis of the life and death of Jesus, and if Jesus, God himself, has promised to always be with you as you serve him and make disciples in his name, we should always be courageous. Before I finish, let me make sure you don't miss a common distortion of this book. Look again at verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Don't miss the doing. Don't miss the obeying, some of your translations say. The reason to know the Word of God is to obey the Word of God. If you meditate and memorize and can explain all that God said, but you do not do what God said, that is a failure of courage. The point of remembering God's promises and the point of trusting God's presence is obedience. Courage is not bravado. Courage is not self-determination. It's not you striking out in a direction that you want to go. Very often, verse 9 is quoted 
and shared on Instagram and used as a cool-looking tattoo. But the point of you is for not you to boldly strike out in whatever direction you want. All of this is predicated, the point of God saying, remember, meditate, stay in my word, and remember always that I am with you, is that you will have the courage to obey him. Courage is bold obedience to God because you believe that God will keep his word and you will trust him to be with you as you do. If you get my weekly email, and I hope you do, later today, hopefully before you get home, I'm going to send you a collection of scriptures to take us together as a church family from Monday through Saturday. I've just looked through the Bible and selected six short passages that speak to courage in these anxious times. And what I'm going to invite you to do is to read them and to actually write them out. To have a little notebook you set aside and to write out the Scripture as you read it and pray over it so that you can begin to get the Word of God in your heart because that's what's going to make the difference. The Word of God that you take into your heart and you trust His promises and it gives you courage enough to remember that this is what has God has promised and God has promised to be with me, so I'm going to grit my teeth as afraid as I am and I'm going to do what God said, that's courage. And it's needed now more than ever. You see, the reason courage so often comes up in movies of all kinds, animated movies intended for young girls and war movies intended for guys who like to see themselves on that beach, is because we know deep in our heart how admirable and necessary courage is. For the last few years, because of some volunteering I'm doing, I've had the pleasure and honor of spending a lot of time with first responders. I've seen and heard stories of great courage, but I've also heard stories of great cowardice. I talked to a firefighter who was working in a very dangerous situation in a wildfire, and the men behind him, fearful for their lives, actually cut his hoses and fled leaving him in front of a fire with no water. He barely made it out alive. I heard of another police officer who went in alone with an active shooter because the men who should have gone in with him got scared and stayed behind, arguing that they hadn't heard the communication. But he said, but I knew that day, and I'll never forget who they actually are. Courage is what is needed at the moment you're tested. In his dystopian science fiction novel, Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury imagines a world where firemen are setting fires and burning books. And the world has become so totalitarian and so cruel that knowledge is kept from people through destruction and through violence. But at the very end of the book, Ray Bradbury gives a sliver of hope because the hero of the story gets out of the city and as the city is destroyed by nuclear war, out in the countryside, he meets a roving band of intellectuals who, to his surprise, have found the remaining copies of the books, the great books of the world, and they are committing them to memory. Then that hero remembers actually a, a passage from the Bible, from Ecclesiastes. 
And the book closes, secular book to be sure, closes with a little glimmer of hope that maybe this dystopian society that you've been made to live in for 200 pages, maybe it can be redeemed and maybe it can be rebuilt if people can remember the truth. You actually have the very Word of God. My question to you is, if your Bible was taken from you, and if they took your smartphone so you couldn't look the Bible up on your phone, how much of the Word of God is already in your heart that would keep you moving forward? Because the battle you're in, the spiritual battle that you're in as a Christian, as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a child, as an employee, that matters so much more even than a firefighter in a blaze and a cop going into a dangerous building. You're in a fight for truth. You're in a fight for souls. You're in a fight for eternity. So please remember that courage is proven by conduct. The proof of godly courage is only and always godly conduct. Everything else until it is time to act is only theory and only promises and only good intentions. What matters is action. Courage, what I'm trying to tell you is simply this, courage is obeying God instead of your fears. We all have a great deal to fear these days. I listened to a retired political activist who said, candidly reflecting on his career, what they said in his office was that two things drive people to political action, anger and fear. Always stoke the anger and fear. We see that more keenly now than ever. Listen to God's truth to the contrary. What God says moves the world and moves his people into it with God's purpose is courage. Simply remembering what God has promised, a steadfast determination to obey God, not because we're macho, not because we're tough, but we have made the determination that believing God is more important than following our feelings, that trusting God to act according to His Word and obeying His Word is far more important than our fears, that we will trust God to go with us. So my invitation to you, whether you're here in the room or watching this online, is to get in touch with your Heavenly Father right now and every day this week and at every point, the moment you're tested, act with courage. I'm sharing this sermon with a little bit of trepidation, honestly, because I've learned from 30 years of preaching that every time I preach something, God immediately has a pop quiz for me. So if I talk to you about courage, I expect a pop quiz sometime this week as if my heavenly Father were to say, really, you think you got a handle on that? You think you can dare open your mouth and speak about courage to people? Let's put you in the pressure cooker and see if you have any of the courage you spoke of. That may be true for you this week as well because now I've given you an obligation. I've reminded you of the gospel and of God's great promises to you. I've reminded you of the fact that God will always go with you. So my invitation to you is let's master our fears and let's move forward with bold obedience to God in everything we understand He has commanded us and obey God instead of our fears. Let's pray together. Father, thank you Thank you for those who have come this morning. 
Thank you for those who are watching, Lord, have been so encouraged to get text messages from across the country, people who watched earlier. Help us all act with courage, Lord. Help us have the courage of Christ this week who trusted you literally unto death. Help us act with the same loving, faithful courage that Jesus put in you, Heavenly Father, so that we may be known and seen to act as your kids, Christians. Help us love and give and serve. Bless moms and dads and frightened children as well. Bless students and employees and employers and everybody, God, who's feeling this pressure. Help all of us who know you to turn to you, that you may be pleased, delighted with the faithful, courageous action and obedience you see in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.